you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours and ran into the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God. I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage? Has he immigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Where is God? he cried. I will tell you, we have killed him. You and I, all of us, are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from the sun? Where is it moving now? Where are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually? backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying, as though through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has not it become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing yet? of the noise of the gravediggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? God's too decompose. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves? The murderers of all murderers. What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed, and whoever is born after us, for the sake of this deed, he will belong to a higher history than all previous history. Here the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners, and they too were silent, staring at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern on the ground, and it broke into pieces, and it went out. I have come too early, he said then. My time is not yet. This tremendous event is still on its way, still wandering. It has not yet reached the ears of men. Lightning and thunder require time. The light of the stars requires time. Deeds, though done, still require time to be seen and heard. This deed is still more distant from them than most distant stars, and yet they have done it themselves. What happens to a society when it abandons God? 
What you just heard is the infamous parable of a madman by German thinker Friedrich Nietzsche. Written in 1882, Christians have long been mischaracterizing Nietzsche's proclamation that God is dead. It was not a celebratory comment. He was, by all accounts, atheistic, but he was not celebrating the death of God. He was warning his culture. When you remove the bottom block of the Jenga tower, what's left? How are we going to keep this thing standing upright? Right? We, we just untethered the earth from the sun. What direction are we going? How do I even know up from down at this point? What do we do in a society that has removed God? And you can play that question out all the way down to the level of the individual. You can look at that globally in terms of humanity. You can look at it nationally or regionally or statewide or community or all the way into your family, into your own very person. When God is removed from any single one of those levels, how does what was standing remain standing? What is it built upon? What foundation is sure enough to hold the structure of whatever is left? This morning, we are going to peer into the story of 2 Kings. And as I was reading through it this week, I found it less of an ancient narrative and more of a mirror in story form. It is a dire warning of a society that has abandoned God. But in the midst of that dire warning, it will end with the slimmest glimmer of hope. If you have a Bible, we'll be in 2 Kings today. We are working our way up through the historical books of the Old Testament, taking entire books in one sermon. So this is a little bit unusual if you're newer. I'm going to do the entire book of 2 Kings today. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one nearby you. It's on page 307 in that Bible. And we're going to cover a lot of ground. We're doing that to work up to a study in the book of Hebrews the New Testament book that assumes the most knowledge of Old Testament history and theology. So that is why we are doing what we do today. We have the book of 2 Kings, and as we turn there, let us first ask for God's good blessing on this endeavor. Let's pray. Lord God, you are worthy of all of our praise, and then infinitely more. Every true statement, every acknowledgement of your glory that is given to you by us falls woefully short. And so, Lord, we seek to increase that praise and that glory giving in our own lives and in this church to the maximum extent. Would you help us to heed this warning written down for us in the narrative so long ago? and to cling to the hope that is still here in the midst of all of this brokenness. We pray these things, God, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Begin this book with the rhythm of the kings. 
This is uh, less character-driven. If you've been with us for a little bit, we've been going through these Old Testament narratives. Less character-driven in 2 Kings than what we've seen in 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings. Those books are dominated by, by kind of standout figureheads, right? It, it's, it's kind of the leading figure of the nation. It, it's, like, it's like telling the story of World War II. You're going to talk about Churchill and Hitler. Like they, they are the dominant figures, and in the same way, uh, don't too, <laughs> take too much with that analogy, but you, in the same similar vein of thinking of the dominant figures of history, 1 Samuel is dominated by Samuel and Saul and then David. And 2 Samuel is just all of the, the story and life of David. And 1 Kings is still really dominated by the life of Solomon. But by the time you get to 2 Kings, there is not a standout individual. Rather, you have this ongoing rhythm this turnover and the office of the monarchy in Israel and in Judah. It's a mishmash of characters, some of whom only get a few verses, and then we're on to the next. So there's a rhythm to this book. But that, that rhythm is probably insufficient to explain the entire broad framework of the book, because while there is a rhythm, there is also a trajectory, and it is downward. This cycle of the kings does not go in a good direction. The high point of the nation under David and Solomon is, is just going to be all the way in the rearview mirror to the point where it's a distant thought by the end of this book. The nations are going to decline spiritually and politically. They drift away from who God has called them to be. And if you don't remember, by the way, that this is frequently where our Old Testament Bible knowledge, even for those who are really in, steeped into church world, gets a little fuzzy, right? Which king was that? Was that north or south? And, and the, the book of 2 Kings is going to ping pong back and forth between the two, and it's sometimes difficult. The names are not easy. It's difficult to remind yourself of where you are. I'm going to try to help us here, but I'm not going to go through each of the kings individually. There, there's like almost 40 of them, so it's impossible on a Sunday morning to give them all justice. We're going to talk about them at a very, very broad level. In the midst of that, this rhythm of the kings and this trajectory happens at a, a notable time in history. If you remember, after Solomon, the kingdom splits into two. We have a northern kingdom of ten tribes of Israel, the southern kingdom of the two tribes of Judah, and these two kingdoms are going to each have kings that reign over each of them. And in the midst of that biblical history, we are going to glimpse into the, the broader world history stage because there are some notable nation-states that come in, and, and really nation-state is a, uh, an anachronism, trying, trying to shove modern ideas onto old history here. Uh, it, the, the world powers are going to show up in this story. So let me briefly take you through that history real quick. And actually, while I've got you here, first hour, I've got a bone to pick with you, first hour. Two weeks ago, I was here preaching, and I was talking about Saul. This is, this is not, I was talking about Saul, and I was off the top of my head trying to remember, they picked him because he was pretty, and I was trying to remember out loud the, the debate between JFK and another president that, you know, if it was on the radio, if it was on TV, and you all let me stand here. No one corrected me. Not one of you helped me out. 
I was doing this spontaneously. It wasn't in my notes. And I, for some reason, presidential debate came into my mind, and the name that I said was Walter Mondale, who's like 20 years after JFK, and none of you helped me out. Not one of you. That went online, all right? I just I want you to know that is forever on the internet for me as a self-styled person of I really love history, and you let me stand here with the verbal equivalent of spinach in my teeth, and none of you told me. None of you told me. All right? I expect more from you, first hour. Do better. Do better. Okay? For, I, like I said, I, I was thinking presidential debate, and, the, and Mondale, was, he was against Reagan. There was the, it is my favorite presidential debate line. That's why it can't, it was for whatever reason, that word association where the, the moderator asked, is age going to be a significant factor in this debate? You get, if you've been around, young people, if not, you can go watch this video. And Reagan responds, no, my opponent's youth and inexperience should not be a major factor. And, he, and Mondale starts laughing, right? He cracked up his opponent. Anyhow, it was Nixon, okay? It was Nixon. It was was 20 years earlier. Help me out next time. Okay, back to this week. I expect more. Back to this week. Three significant nations are going to play into this story, and they are the world powers of the day. So in succession, it's going to be Assyria, and then Babylon, and then Persia. So you, you touched on this briefly last week, but let me just remind you, 722, the northern kingdom is going to be conquered by the Assyrians. Israel is going to be laid to waste. We're going to see that in this text. We'll look at it in chapter 17 in just a moment. And the Israelites are going to be carried away, and the Assyrians are going to settle the land, and, and it's never going to be resettled permanently by the Israelites. There's always going to be a, uh, a, a mix of, of nationalities and, and uh, genetic blood in that area is always going to be a mishmash from then on out. So that happens in 722. Assyria is going to fall to Babylon, and by 586, Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, will have its turn in, in the sun of uh, being taken over by larger nations, and Jerusalem is going to fall to the Babylonians in 586. Judah. Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem, Aaron. All right, I take it back. Don't help me out. I don't know. The city of Jerusalem falls in 586. The nation of Judah lasts a little, you know, it, it, yeah, never mind. Um, so that's 586 BC. Not long after that, Persia is going to conquer Babylon. So when they're sent back, if you know the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, that's going to be at the, at the behest of the King Cyrus, of, of, uh, Cyrus the Great of the Persians, because the Persians have come in and they've conquered the Babylonians. So those are your three major powers, just to complete your circle to something that's a little more familiar. The, the Persians are going to fall to the Greeks, Alexander the Great, right? He conquers all the way to India. He dies on his way back. His generals gather around him. They ask him, who do you leave the kingdom? And he says, to the strongest. Not a great succession plan, by the way. That leads to a bunch of civil war, which allows Rome to quite easily come in and conquer the Greeks. And Rome is the world power at the time of Christ. So there you go. There's your brief world history. Um, Assyria to Babylon to Persia, that's what's going to happen in our story. We are dates here about 800s BC to about 500 BC is where this story is going to take place. Okay, there are 19 kings in the north, there are 20 kings in the south. And of the kings in the north, where we'll start, the kings of Israel, there's not one good one. This rhythm of, hey, there's a new king in the north, and every time, Without fail, all 19, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
Let me show it to you very briefly. Chapter 13 of 1 Kings, this is just a, a representative example of, of one. Again, this happens 19 times in the northern kingdom. Chapter 13, page 319, if you're using a chair Bible, verses 1 to 3. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Hazaiah, king of Judah, so the, the narrator's always bouncing back and forth, hey, while this was happening in Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazel, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazel. That is the template, and that will happen 19 times. I don't need to go through each of the names. You'll get lost in them anyhow. Every time there's a new king in the north, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not remove the places of idolatry that dominate the landscape of Israel. There's a new king. We're going to try again. He fails in the same way as everyone else. Idolatry is the standard, and Israel follows. That is the pattern. That is the rhythm that happens 19 times. They are evil. They do evil. They lead the nation towards evil. If Israel is a nation in a car, the kings get in, they point the steering wheel towards a cliff, and they slam the gas pedal down on the floor. It's not a good office. It's not a, uh, an institution that has done well for the nation. It has led them in the exact wrong direction, and it's done so at 100 miles an hour. This culminates in the northern kingdom in chapter 17, to which I just referred. So if you would, flip over there. In many ways, this is the central chapter to understanding, and it is in, in terms of the uh, length of the book. It is right dead in the middle, 25 chapters, verse, chapter 17, right in the middle of the book. Verse 6, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. He carried the Israelites away to Assyria, and he placed them in Halah, and on the harbor, the river Gozan, and in the city of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the custom of the kings of Israel had practiced people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtowers to a fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars of the Asherim on the high hill and under every garden tree, and they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did, whom the Lord carried away before them. There's no difference between God's people and the people who were here before. Keep going. Oh, I lost my place. Did before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. Verse 12. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. 
Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways. Keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants and prophets. But they would not listen, but they were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. That is the story of 2 Kings in a nutshell. God sent prophets, every one of them, the prophets and the seers, and we'll get to them in just a moment, and they show up and they say, turn away from your evil. Thus saith the Lord, go back to what he has commanded you. And Israel goes, yeah, whatever. You do you, Isaiah or Jeremiah or Hosea or Nahum or Micah, whatever. You do you, we're going to do us. And they follow the desires of their heart off the edge of a cliff towards Assyrian captivity. If you read on in chapter 17, you'll see that they are captured. This ancient problem of idolatry is pervasive. It's been a problem for the people. Every moment since they walked out of the land of Egypt, they've been flirting with idolatry and they have to be reeled back in. God removes them, the Assyrians settle the nations, and they don't honor God, so he sends lions to start eating people. At which point the Assyrians grab a bunch of priests from Israel and they say, tell us what we need to know about the God of this land so that we can stop being eaten by lions. And they do, and the Assyrians start to worship Yahweh. But, if you look, verse 29 of chapter 17, but every nation, so in verse, sorry, in verse 24, the Assyrians bring people from everywhere, Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharavim, and the people of the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. So they've resettled in the same land. People of Israel are all gone. The Assyrians bring in their own. And what do they do? Every nation still made gods of its own. They put them in shrines and of the high places that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived, jump down to verse 33. So they feared the Lord. But they also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they'd been carried away. So the northern section of God's people have been removed entirely, and that space has been settled by a group that kind of fears God, but also serves their own gods. This may help you realize why the hasty distaste between God's people and the Samaritans persists into your New Testament. Those people up north who kind of are us, they're not really. They're, they're a mixed breed of people who used to be related to us and the Assyrians who brought in a bunch of other people and they kind of worship different things and they're all, they're all over the map. They serve their own gods, but they also serve Yahweh. And you see in verse 30, they, they named them. The men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth. The men of Kuth made Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashima. The Avites Nebaz and Tartak and the Sepharavites burned their children in the fire of Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvium. They're straddling the fence. And again, as I said from the heart of a pastor, and 
as an, a Christian in this country, it was hard for me not to see this as a mirror. Is, is this not an apt description of an American world? Served God in many ways, set up on some principles that look good. And yet, and we, and we could take out the the names and the specific gods that they served, and we could reinsert them with our own terms, and it would read quite acceptably. The men of Wall Street worshipped money. The men of academia worshipped intellect. And the men of athletics worshipped vainglory. And the men of Washington worshipped power. And we could go really close, and we could say the men of American evangelicalism worshipped their own self-righteousness. And church, we are all, and we have to be careful here. I don't want to try to just project this type of thing out on our nation and, and finger wag and go, oh man, I just uh, can't believe how, how wicked our nation has gotten. And not for a moment stop and ponder if we have not also fallen into this idolatrous mindset. Because it is a constant struggle for the people of God to have a proper worship of God even for those that look and do all the right things. Even for, for you who are in a church on a Sunday morning, the charge of idolatry has been brought to many who have sat in churches and rightly been assessed. And so we have to see in this story a, a warning a shot across the bow of our faith. Are you worshiping God as you should? What place does God occupy in your life? Because there are many of us who would like to, to do this kind of Assyrian thing. God and. And when you do that, there's inevitably going to be conflict. Well, what happens when you worship God and money, and, and those two things run up against each other. Which one gets the upper hand? When you worship God and power, God and social standing, one of them is going to have to sit on top of that priority list. And you will all worship something. There is no non-answer to this. There will be something in your life in your family, in your community, in your nation that is elevated to the level of deity, the highest, most important thing. And it is incumbent upon us as we look into the Word of God to also look into our own lives. Are we the, the polished up, polite looking idol worshipers? And I could take you to a bunch of the prophets, and we'll talk about them in just a moment, who minister during this time that describe God's people exactly that way. I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your festivals. This is the story of the kings of Israel. It is a warning and the kings of Judah are going to follow the exact same pattern. 
From chapter 17 on, the story will focus on the only remaining kingdom of Judah. If Israel is in the car driving off a cliff at 100 miles an hour, Judah is going towards the same cliff just at 65. They have 20 kings in the southern kingdom. Eight of them are good, but really it's only two that are good. So let me show that to you. If you're in chapter 17, flip a little bit back to chapter 14. Almost all, right? 12 out of the 20 follow the exact same pattern we just saw in chapter 13. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. That is the pronouncement on their reign as a king. Eight times we do not get that phrase, but six out of those eight are what I'm about to show you. Chapter 14, starting in verse 3, we have a new king, Amaziah. And in verse 3, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Oh, good. Great. Finally, somebody hit the brakes on that car that's just hurtling towards the cliff. But not like his father, David. Okay, he tapped the brakes. He did in all things as Joash, his father, had done, but the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. That's one of the good kings. He's a good king, but he didn't remove the idolatry. The people still sacrificed to other gods. Two more times. Let me just show you since we're here. Chapter 15, verse 3. And he, this time, we have Azariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all his father Amaziah, exactly who you just read about, had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings to the high places. One more, chapter 15, verse 33. This time we have Jotham. He was 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned in 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. So even on our six good kings, it's like, good? You know, it's, it's like, maybe? There are only two kings in Judah that do not meet that description. Twelve just outright bad. Six, eh, okay. Two that are worthy of, of being called in the line of David. Those two are Hezekiah and Josiah. You find Hezekiah's story beginning in chapter 18, and you'll have a definitively different description here. Now listen to this. He, that's Hezekiah, verse 2 of chapter 18, he was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Church, that is the proper response to idolatry. It is not to be flirted with. It is not to be ignored. It'll go away. Let's just leave it on its own. It is a cancer that is to be cut out aggressively. That is a good king. 
He doesn't hit the brakes. He turns the car around. No, no, we're not going to pursue those evil, wicked things. We are going to chase after the authentic, uh, exclusive worship of Yahweh. It is not God and it is God only. Everything else falls underneath that. So I ask you again, church, in the introspective version of this, is God the only thing that sits in the top priority of your life? Is the, the worship and glory of the Almighty God the dominating heuristic, the question that guides and constrains and forms and pushes your life forward? Or do you have a split, idolatrous life? This is always so difficult, is it not? Because to be virtuous, you have to be virtuous all the time. To be a truth teller, you have to always tell the truth. It is just but one time of lying that you are now a liar. And if we're honest, none of us lives up to this standard. Hezekiah has some famous stories with him. The Assyrians tried to come down and conquer Jerusalem in the same way they just conquered Israel, and Hezekiah prays. And the Assyrian king Sennacherib, who is entirely more powerful, has more people, has every resource available to him except for the ear of the Almighty God. And Hezekiah prays in chapter 19, and God says, I'm going to turn those Assyrians back. And he does. Sickness befalls the Assyrian army, and they run away. The siege of Jerusalem fails, and they go back. Hezekiah also has the famous story about him. He's about to die. He's sick, and he prays, and he asks God for more time, and God grants him, is it 13 or 15? I'm walking away from my notes. I should know this. Another 15 years on his life. This is in chapter 20. Verse 6, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and the city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city. Why? Uh, so great here. For my own sake. It is for God's glory that Israel, excuse me, Judah, Jerusalem here, is delivered. So we have a good king. The problem is, as soon as that is over, Manasseh shows up and he's the worst of the worst. He's such a bum. And in chapter 21, verse 10, the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all of the Amorites did who were before him, this has made Judah also sin with his idols. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I'm bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster, the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Again, church, what does a life that has abandoned God look like? There is an inevitable end to that choice. It's true of a nation that is true of an individual. It's true of a church. the profane idolatry, the rejection of the Almighty will find its day in court. 
And the wickedness of Manasseh drives God to say, judgment is coming and there is nothing that is going to turn it back. God grabs the wheel, puts it on cruise control. There's no stopping at this point. Now, there is a bit of a slow because in chapter 22, Josiah comes along. The boy king, Josiah, in verse, eight, he's eight, or, uh, verse 1 of chapter 22, he's eight years old when he becomes king. In this quite famous story of Josiah, they find the book of the law, and, and they read it, and he's broken. We're not following. And if you flip over to chapter 23, verse 2, and the king, that's Josiah, went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and he made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart and with all of his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book and all the people joined in the covenant. And the application is, is poignant here. Do not miss the indispensable value of the Word of God in your life of following Him. Judah had forgotten what God said. They stopped listening. And Josiah finds the law and they open it up and they say, what have we done? We weren't allowing the voice of God to construct and constrain and guide and encourage and shape our thinking. And so what were we left with? our own wicked desires. And once again, we can extrapolate this down right to the level of the individual. What place does the Word of God have in your life, O oh Christian? Is it guiding and constraining and encouraging and correcting? Or is it forgotten and dusty? Because God has spoken. We who struggle with the idols of our heart, and that is you, and that is me, and that is everyone who has ever lived, because we think we should be in the top spot, do we not? Each of us is always prone to falling into our own idolatrous desires. The elevation of self at the expense of all else. And we need the Word of God to come along and remind us because we are oh so forgetful, to hear what God has for us, to, to see His faithfulness, to trust and to honor Him. Do not miss the value of the Word of God in your life. Which brings me to the second major point of the prophets. If we've looked at this rhythm of the kings in the north and the south, there is an undercurrent in this book. It's, it's a main current at the beginning, and then it, it's easy to potentially lose it as we go, of the prophetic word. The latter half of the book of 1 Kings, the beginning of 2 Kings, is a, a handing of the baton between Elijah and Elisha. 
And the book opens, again, let me, let me remind you, First and Second Kings were originally written as one book. So this story kind of sits right at the middle point, this, this prophetic transition. We have the, the kingship of Solomon, of Rehoboam, and Jeroboam that kind of dominate the beginning. And then as we go, Elijah takes center stage towards the end of First Kings, and then he shifts to Elisha, and then we get back to all this transition of kings at the end. So the middle point of the big book of Kings is dominated by these two figures who have this prophetic succession. And the book opens with this, like, just Elijah just showing that he is the top dog in the world, right? The the king keeps sending men to go and talk to him, and Elijah just sits there, and when they get close, he calls down fire from heaven and just burns them up. Like tw- three times, in a, twice in a row, 50 men, soldiers are sent, and Elijah's just waiting. And they're like, he's, he doesn't have anybody with him. Let's just go get him. Boom, he prays, and they're gone. Like, and if you would have sat there, just be like, oh, you know, like he did it again. They send 50 more guys. Boom, fire from heaven. And the next garrison, the next group, of the, the captain comes up. He's like, please don't do it again. We know what you do. Please don't. We're not going to arrest you. Would you please just listen to us? Elijah has the ear of God because he's a faithful man of God. And when he calls, God responds. But he's near the end of his life, and, and as the story rolls on in the first and second chapter of, of Second Kings, Elisha, his protege, is with him. And Elijah is crossing over the Jordan. He keeps telling Elijah, just stay here. And Elisha says, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to leave you. And they cross over the Jordan, and Elijah asks him, What do you want? Very similar to the question that Solomon is given. Only this time it's from the prophet and not directly from God. But Elisha similarly gives a good request. And in chapter 2, verse 9, Elisha asks of Elijah for a double portion of his spirit. He could have anything, right? This is the guy who has the ear of God. He just showed, when I ask God to bring fire from heaven, it happens. So when he asks you, what do you want? You go, oh, let me think about that one for a minute. You know, the genie just popped out of the lamp. I can ask for about anything and God's going to grant it because God listens to Elijah. And Elisha asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And we see that play out poetically in the book. There are eight miracles recorded of Elijah. There are 16 miracles recorded of Elisha. He gets exactly twice as many as his former boss. And that's the stories of kind of the first eight chapters or so are showing these, and many of them quite famous. We have the the axe head that floats, and, and Elisha multiplies loaves and feeds an army, very similar, a precursor to the feeding of the 5,000. He's healing Naaman from leprosy. He's raising children from the dead. Elisha, just like Elisha, uh, excuse me, reverse that. Elisha, just like Elijah, has the, the ear of the Almighty God. When he prays, God listens. And these miracles highlight the truth that God has not abandoned His people. His people of wicked, they've turned away, right? In the north, 19 kings, none of them good. In the south, 28 okay. Really, it's six that are okay, two that are good, and 12 that are just blah. 
And yet, as God's people have abandoned him, he is still working in their midst. That prophetic succession reminds us that the prophetic word is still working. Now, we frequently associate the prophetic word with prophecy, and obviously you hear it in the word, but there is a much broader element to the ministry of the prophets than oracles of the future. That the oracles of the future, the prophecy of what is to come, is a, a relatively minimal part of the role of the prophets. Far more often, the prophets bring clarity to the present. They show up and say, this is what God has to tell you. Let me, let me show it to you in this book, chapter 19. Right? Again, if we're, we're sticking with our story, Elisha is going to get two times the miracles as Elijah. He ministers for a while, and then he kind of fades as that rhythm of the kings takes over. But in chapter 19, we have a new prophet, Isaiah, and, and the, yes, that Isaiah who writes the book. And he is ministering during the life of Hezekiah. And, and it is this time when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, this outmanned, outgunned Jerusalem holding up, going, I hope we, we survive this one. And it's this when Hezekiah prays, and Isaiah is the voice of God to the king. And in verse 20 of chapter 19, then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Israel, uh, Assyria, excuse me, I have heard. This is the word of the Lord that has spoken concerning him. So the prophets are the mouthpiece of God to the people of God. Sometimes that is in terms of prophetic words about the future, but far more often it is bring clarity to the present. And, and I bring this up because there's an undercurrent here that you can miss if you're not careful. Almost all of the prophetic books in the Old Testament happen during 2 Kings. There are five major prophets. There are 12 minor prophets. Out of those 17 books, 14 of them take place during this time frame. 14 of them. There are only three that happened after the close of 2 Kings, and, and those are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So all of the major prophets and most of the minor prophets are going on during this time. God is still sending His voice to His people. He's not abandoned them. He's not left them to their own devices. They are wicked. They have turned from Him. Go, go and read in the book of Ezekiel the description of Israel, right? You, you were this abandoned infant in a field covered in your own blood that nobody wanted. It's quite graphic. And God came along and rescued you, and He took care of you and nurtured you and brought you up. And then you, when you were old enough, you turned away from Him, and you went out, and quite graphically again, you hoard yourself among the nations. That language is given to this group of people. As the prophet Ezekiel is reminding them, you've turned away from God. You've abandoned Him. And there are consequences to that. And, and Nietzsche's parable of the madman who reminds the modern world, when you take God out of the equation, I don't know what's left. Now, he doesn't disagree with that conclusion. He still tries to remove God, but he's more cautious about it, right? We've untethered the earth from the sun. Who knows where we're going? We didn't need Nietzsche for that proclamation. Ezekiel told us a long time ago. 
you've removed God. That is going to come with consequences. There's no up or down anymore. Do you understand how fundamentally broken society and individuals without God are? I don't say that as some uh, holier-than-thou indictment that I'm better and you're worse. Far be it from me. I am right there with you. A wicked, sinful person who thinks I should be at the top of that priority list. It is only by the grace of God that any of us have been rescued from this type of mindset. I don't make that proclamation because I think you're bad and I'm good. I make that proclamation because we all need the grace of God, and I need to be reminded of that, that that it is the prophetic voice of God that says, do not stray away from me. If you do, you build the tower of your existence on very shaky ground. And the voice of the prophet comes to his people to remind them of who God is and who they are. And this is significant because God's people are called to live in a manner that is consistent with who God is, and they are not left to their own devices to figure that out. They aren't given a gun and then given a blindfold. You have a target, and, and that language fits quite nicely with our New Testament understanding of this. The word for sin, hamartia, it quite literally means to miss the target. We have the target because God has revealed Himself. Because God spoke through His prophets and church, He's still speaking to you. In the same way that Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and said, Thus saith the Lord, we get to look at our Bible and say, "This This is what the Lord says. Thus saith the Lord. You and I have, in many ways, a superior ministry of the prophets. One that is here for you at any given moment. The Lord has not left you to wander about not knowing what is good and not to be done. He has given you all kinds of guidance. Church, thus saith the Lord. Again, we come back to the indispensable value of the Word of God in your life. And so through this story, the voice of the prophets is there. He close with a glimmer of hope. Despite Josiah's reforms at the end of chapter uh, 22 and 23, the nation is too far gone. They're teetering over the cliff, right? Isaiah slammed on the brakes and the car stopped, but the nose was hanging out over the cliff and it took one guy to sneeze that just put the whole thing right over. And so that falling over the cliff happens. And in chapter 25, Jerusalem falls at the hand of the Babylonians. But the book ends on an odd note. Jehoiachin, one of the former kings in verse 27 of chapter 25, they're in the 37th year of exile. And the king, the former king of Judah in the 12th month on the 27th day, quite specific here, the king of Babylon frees Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him. And he gave him a seat at the seat of the kings who were with him in Babylon. And so Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. 
It's a dire, broken book. But we end with this tiny sliver of hope. The line of kings has not died out. That, by the way, is the, the other side of that coin is met in the story of Second Chronicles. We aren't going to do First and Second Chronicles because chrono, uh, in terms of historical nature, they map on entirely to First, Second Samuel and First, Second Kings. They're just kind of told from a little bit of a different perspective, and that perspective in First and Second Chronicles is the line of kings and the line of priests. So if you look in First Chronicles, it starts with these genealogies, but particular consideration is given to the line of Judah, and then subsequently David, and the line of Levi. These two dominating offices in the nation of Israel of king and priest. Well, as the story goes, particular consideration is given to the building of the temple, and that just follows the line of the southern kings in the book of Chronicles. And so, the, the author of Chronicles, which is probably Ezra, and I'll show you why in just a moment, is wanting to show you the, the priest and king, priest and king, priest and king, over and over and over and over again. And Chronicles ends on a similarly almost hopeful note. If you flip to the end of Second Chronicles, which is the two books later from Second Kings, chapter 36, page 388, if you're using a chair Bible, Chronicles ends on a, a cliffhanger. It's actually an incomplete sentence. The thought just kind of dangles. Cyrus, right? So we've had the Persians come in and conquer the Babylonians. So uh, the southern kingdom of Judah is conquered by Babylon. They're taken to Babylon. Think of Daniel and his friends, right? They've been dragged off. Some people stayed, but most of them were taken away. All of the, the, the well-to-do and, and influential people of Judah were taken. After that, Babylon's conquered by Persia. And Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, in the first year, verse 22, Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. Not the language you would expect from a pagan king house of Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all of his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Dot, dot, dot. And that thought is caught up. This is why everybody thinks Ezra wrote First and Second Chronicles. That caught is caught, thought is finished in Ezra chapter 1. So if you look on the very next page, page Ezra chapter 1, verse 3, whoever is among you of all of his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So at the end of 2 Kings, we have this slimmer of, slight glimmer of hope of the, the line of kings hasn't died out. At the end of 2 Chronicles, we have this slight glimmer of hope that, that the temple is going to be rebuilt, that the priesthood is going to come back in some way. And so both of these historical books end pointing you to a greater version of these integral offices in the nation of Israel. The kings and the priests are going to come back. If there is a better way, I keep ending all of these in the same way, I, I, I don't know why we wouldn't. If there is a better way to point you to the book of Hebrews, I don't know what it is. 
that the broken line of kings and priests that was so woefully dreadful through the judges and through the conquest and, and through the, the era of the kings, that inadequate version of those offices is going to meet a perfect version of those offices in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is that forever perfect high priest it is that forever king on the throne, that eternal sacrifice of Christ, that, that the books of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles hopefully look forward to. That is where we are going, church. And it's to be reminded that this brokenness, this nation that forgot God, that God didn't forget them. And He brought about a better version of what they had before so that they could be redeemed more completely. And church, you are those people who have been redeemed more completely in Jesus Christ. You have a better hope than what they had. You have a greater promise than what they had. And it is in that person of Christ who perfects the office of king and priest and of prophet. It is in Christ Jesus that we hope. Even in the darkest of moments in the nation of Israel's history, it points us to that greater hope that you and I now enjoy. And to that we say, praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you for the better hope that we have in Christ. And we pray that this broken reminder out of the history of your people would call us into great joy and delight for what we have would we see the value of your word for guiding and reminding us of who you are, Lord? And we pray as individuals, as a church, as a community, as a nation, that you would help us not to forget, to not abandon you as our God, but to praise and glorify and elevate you and what you've done through your Son in every way that we possibly can. We need your help in that endeavor, God. So we ask, enable, give us boldness, Help us towards that end. It is for your glory that we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.